everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead, people. It's true. It's absolutely true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, premier free writing magazine on the internet, featuring all kinds of great articles on writing and the writing life. I mean by that business of writing, craft of writing, but also just... Uh, just what it is to be got a couple of great ones about the writing life from uh, uh, Mr. R.J. Jeffries wrote about writing, kind of saving a difficult childhood. That was a good one. Go check it out. But we also have video uh, interviews with best-selling, award-winning authors across the genres. Right now, I had a great conversation up with Bruce Van Dusen, a television commercial director who's written a memoir about his his life in that unusual industry. Great conversation. It's all over there, authormagazine.org. Go check it out. And, uh, of course, we're funded by the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955, and they have a writers' conference every year. Yes, they do. Uh, I think it's going to be from the September 24th is the conference this year. It begins the weekend of September 24th, 25th, 26th, 27th. And, of course, it's online. Hopefully next year it won't be, but this year it is. And you know what? I'm going to be there. Yes, I am. I'm going to be talking to Laura Munson. She's giving a kind of keynote, but I'm going to be there asking her questions. So it's going to be like an interview keynote. It's going to be great. So, yeah, I will be there. And you can be there, too, no matter where you are, because that's the beauty of the Internet. And if you, you know what, you can, if you're going to, Want to check out the Alaska Writers Conference? You can do that, too, because I'm going to be there teaching fearless writing and fearless marketing. That's right. Two conferences in the same weekend. That's the beauty of Zoom. Uh, so check it all out, whether it's the PNWA, the Alaska Writers Conference. Listen, conferences, great for writers. Can't recommend them enough. But if you want to learn about the PNWA and their conference, go to pnwa.org. .org. Okay. Well, all right, something, well, a little different, not that different. But we're interviewing, I'm going to be talking to Donald M. Ratner today. Donald's a, his, uh, he's an architect and, of course, an author. And his professional and academic activities have been featured on CNN and in such publications as the New York Times, Work Design Magazine, Better Humans, Town & Country, Rob Report, Connecticut Cottages and Gardens, Builder, Traditional Building, L Magazine, Brooklyn Magazine, Child Art Magazine, Design Milk, and Core 77. And, as I said, he's an author. He's author, uh, most recently, of My Creative Space, How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation, as well as the Creativity Catalog and Parallel of the Classical Orders of Architecture. And he's here with us now. Yes, he is. Donald, how are you doing? Hey, Bill. I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, it's good to have you on. It's good to have you on. So let's, uh, so you're an architect. You're an architect. You know, uh, I have a friend who's an architect, and I have a good friend whose father was an architect, uh, kind of a big deal architect, I guess, in the East Coast growing up. And it strikes me, um, have you, did you always want to be an architect when you were a young fella? Was that something you dreamed about? 
Uh, it was certainly something I was immersed in, and uh, for that, I owe everything to mom, of course, as mom. we often do. So yeah. my mom was herself very interested in architecture as a young woman. Um, this would be now the 1950s we're talking about, wow. just a date myself as well as her. Um, <laughs> now, in the 1950s, women generally didn't become architects. There certainly yeah. were some, but they were, of course, in the minority. So it wasn't until the 1960s that she, when the kids were a little more grown up, was able to go to architecture school, graduate school, and was in the first class at Columbia in their, Whoa. really was a flagship program in architectural preservation. So she was into okay. saving old buildings. So this is the mid-60s. Remember, uh, Penn Station in New York had just been yeah. torn down a few years earlier. This was a growing right. movement. In any case, you know, given that interest, of course, the kids were dragged around from historic house to historic house and were kind of immersed in architecture. Our home was very beautifully uh, renovated by her. So it was kind of in there, in my blood, almost from the beginning. Uh, and then eventually it kind of, I'd actually gone through college, but eventually I said, you know what, I think I'll do that too. And here I am years, years and years later. But did you did you do when you went into college? Because uh, you know I, I've had many uh, creative endeavors I've uh, pursued, but most of them I just you know I wanted to write, so I sat down at my typewriter as a kid and I wrote. And if I want to write a song, I sit down at my piano and I learn how to write a song. And if I want to act, I get up on like I never went to school for anything that I wanted to do, honestly. But that architecture, you kind of have to. Like you can't. I mean, you could theoretically, I suppose, just figure it out. But basically, everybody goes to school for it. And so when you got into undergraduate work, did you know, were you angling towards getting your master's in architecture right away? Or did you have to play around in the world as a grown up for a little bit first? Yeah, there was really an intervening period. So it was kind of in my DNA, in my bloodstream. But yeah. going into college, no, I was interested in other things. In fact, I was more of a science guy in high school. But when I got to, uh, I went to Columbia undergrad myself, I got very interested in art, art history. And I kind of turned into different directions. And I think it was that that kind of brought me ultimately, in a sense, back to my childhood experience, which is architecture. Right. And generally, yes, you do have to go to school. I mean, you can the old fashioned way apprentice, but almost nobody does that anymore. But I right. could go, I could go to graduate school. So I got my undergraduate in you know, BA in liberal arts and art history, and then right. went to Princeton uh, for a master's of architecture. That's what enabled me to practice. Okay. And so, all right. So you practice, but uh, as I said, a friend of mine whose father was an architect would talk to me about the life of the architect. And he was like, yeah, you know, it's tough. You, you, when you think of architects, you, you often think of the person who's designing the big, cool, experimental, like the Seattle library or, you know, anything that, that kind of gets a lot of attention, but there's a lot of people just designing strip malls and doorknobs and just because there's a lot of things that need to be built. And so when you went into architecture, did you go in with a desire to, uh, to design certain kinds of buildings or are you just going to take whatever work got thrown your way? How did that, how did that go for you? Yeah, my interest was fairly widespread. I mean, I had been attracted to New York City. Um, one of the reasons I went to Columbia uh, was that it was in New York. So I was very interested in kind of the urban dimension of things, but I didn't have a strong 
strong idea that I had to do this or I had to do this type. But as, you know, things often happen, you sort of stumble into something. My first job happened to be in what's called high-end custom residential work where I'm designing very nice homes, generally from uh-huh. the ground up, uh, almost oh, being okay. able to do, you know, custom work so I could kind of create it from scratch. And that ended up being the main focus of my career afterwards. But when you did, but even when you're designing from scratch, aren't you working with a client who's like, okay, I want a kitchen with this and I want my bedrooms and I want, or do they just say, go crazy and do whatever you want? <laughs> no, unfortunately, none of my clients ever said go crazy because they probably would have. Right. But um, of course, there's always constraints. There's always an envelope, whether it's money or the size of your lot right. or zoning regulations. You're working within a series of constraints, which a lot of people would say actually fuels creativity. It doesn't That's really right. limit it. It, it goes in right. the opposite direction. It's kind of a yeah. paradox. Um, but, um, of course everything has its limits and I had to operate within those, but all in all compared to certainly other building types, other practices, I was very fortunate having a lot of artistic freedom. Yeah, that's nice. And so can you remember, uh, the first time you, you, where you were doing your work and you thought, cause you know, you get a degree in something and it's like, all right. I've invested a lot of time and money into this. I got to see if I can like want to spend my actual life doing it. But can you remember the experience when you were actually doing the work and you thought, I'm so glad I chose to do this. Like this is a good fit. Do you have a moment like that? Yeah, I actually did. And I can even picture myself where I was sitting. I was in an office on Lafayette street in New York city. I was the third desk in the first row next to the windows. And oh, I told nice. myself, okay. I, I can't, I can't believe they're paying me to do this. You know, that's a wonderful feeling. Oh, God. Like, okay, you're kind of in the groove. That's about as much as you can ask from a work life or certainly one of the main things you can ask. So yeah, I actually remember that moment where I was, what I was doing. It was quite man. Donald, that is the jackpot of life moment. It's right Isn't up there it? with like meeting the love of your life, sitting there realizing you you can't believe people are paying you for that. Oh. <laughs> and they are. That's even the best part. That. What's that? And they were paying. That wasn't just and a turn of phrase. They really were paying. <laughs> That's great. Okay. So now, but uh, I'm talking to you from uh, Connecticut. Do you commute into New York or do you actually do your work from Connecticut? Even, I mean, when, if you weren't being quarantined, would you be working out of Connecticut? Uh, as of most recently, yes. I mean, I lived and worked in New York City for uh, multiple decades, shall we say. Uh-huh. Um, but right. a few years ago, you know, we kind of hit the situation that many people find themselves in we had a have had had a young son kind of moving up through the educational ranks that we just felt we needed to move to other quarters to give him the best possible educational opportunities so since then last several years i have been based uh, all entirely in connecticut though i have a new york kind of office and mail drop and things of that sort right. but you know new york city is just down the road so i'm very closely connected to it uh, physically as well as emotionally sure Sure. And so when you say your professional and academic activities have been featured on CNN and in all these great publications, are they featuring your concepts, your designs, your theories? What is it people tend to focus on when they want to talk about Donald Ratner? Well, there's kind of two sides to the equation. One is the built work. Um, So people seeing examples of buildings that I've designed, generally very 
lovely color photography. There's almost always accompanying text if we're talking a print or even online channel. And then the right. flip side is where I'm writing uh, about subjects, generally architectural in nature, and I'm obviously publishing them in these different places. So some people come to me looking for the work. Some people find me because of the things I write and, and speak about. Um, it's really both sides of the coin. Why did you start writing about it? Talk to me about that. Because you got enough to do. you got enough creative stuff to do <laughs> as a professional architect. Why bring the, the written word into it? Um, you know, architecture obviously is to a certain and to a great degree a visual art, to be sure. But you can also talk about it. You can write about it. You can think about it. It has ideas. It has content. It has meaning. It has clearly a huge impact on yeah. everybody because we all exist in a built environment, unlike maybe some of the other fine arts where you kind of elect to engage with painting or sculpture or music. Architecture right. is, 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 is ingrained in daily life. So nobody can really escape it. And there's a lot to talk about. You know, what should a building be like? What should it mean to people? How should it feel? Uh, what should it be made of? How big should it be? How small? You could just go on and on. And so I had lots of ideas about architecture that I wanted to share with other people. I felt like I had something to say. I also have kind of a teaching bug in me. I don't know, the yeah. didact uh, in me that <laughs> felt like I had something to share and other people could kind of learn from it and gain from it. So for all those reasons, I took to writing as well as practice. And so let's talk about my creative space. This is your most recent book, it's how to design your home to stimulate ideas and spark innovation. Um, th th this must have begun. I mean, how long had you been thinking about the relationship between the space we live in and creativity? Is that something that's been swimming around in you for a long time? Well, you know, when I look back, I kind of pinpoint a pivotal moment that happened close to 20 years from now. And it's one of those atavistic things, I guess, uh, where it kind uh -huh. of lies dormant until some later date and then it kind of comes forth. Um, so, you know, in terms of focusing on this relationship between built space and creativity, idea generation, idea flow, that's been going on now. I don't know. I've lost track a little bit, maybe four or five years in terms of researching, learning, as well as writing right. and teaching and so forth. But the moment where it kind of started goes back to a project I got in the early 2000s where there was a decision of the client. You're talking about the client here who said, right. we're going to build this modular. So for folks out there, modular construction is where you actually build these boxes in a factory, not on the, the building. And then you haul these big boxes on the back of long trucks and you oh, load yeah. them down by crane on the site one by one and you bolt them together and you finish them off. I mean, a lot of times they come with the wiring and the plumbing already in place, but there's a certain amount of work that still needs to be done at the site. And then you finish it off. And when you step back, it looks like any building. You wouldn't know that this wasn't built in the more traditional way with piece by piece by piece. So this right. idea of modular construction just got me sort of thinking. It was almost like someone had taken away my sketch pad and crayons <laughs> and given me a box of Legos and said, here, right, now you've right. got to design a building only using these, what they're called bricks. They can only be six by three or two by two or whatever it is. Right. Go for it. And at first you think, you know, we we're talking about constraints. At first you think, what? That, what? Why do I have to like hem myself in? But of course, with Legos, there is no end to where the imagination can take right. things. So this got me thinking about creativity, architecture. And as I started to read into it, I kept stumbling on these, whether they were articles or posts or books uh, or papers, connecting our physical space, literally the walls, floors, ceilings, things, things in the space around us and our ability to be creative. And I just got 
so fascinated by what are generally unseen connections. They're kind of hidden. They're, they're kind of below our conscious radar that I started to say, you know what, so, somebody A needs to knit all these little disparate pieces that are all over the place together and B, make them accessible, not just to my fellow design professionals, but really everybody who's in kind of committed to a creative life. And that's what got me going. And so, okay, I, I, I'm not going to hire an architect to redesign my house, though I would love to. <laughs> frankly, although I think I'm just going to sell it and buy a new one, but that's a different kind of redesign. But let's say I'm like, I can never be too creative. It's impossible. This is how I live and make my living. What are some things you can do in your home if you're not going to rebuild it that can free up creativity? Is that even possible? Uh, it is most certainly possible. And um, in fact, uh, there's kind of a sub subtitle to my book, which is 48 science-based techniques. Yes. Yes. So that's, you know, very important. I tried to get the publisher to kind of make that part of the official title, but for whatever reason, I wasn't yeah. able to succeed in that right. objective. But that's really key right there. First of all, these are all science-based techniques. So it's not just me kind of making it up or saying, you know, it works for me, it should work for you. There's a lot right. of data, a lot of research behind all the things I talk about in the book. And the fact that there are 48 of them, obviously there are quite a few of them. You don't have to do all 48 to reap the psychological creative benefits from it. Even one alone can make a difference. But they okay. span, you know, a very wide range of um, aspects of one's physical environment. In fact, there were so many that I kind of organized them. I broke them down into three groups. So like the first group, I deal with uh, what I call triggers, cues, things in the environment that promote creativity based on things that you see. So that could be in the walls, floors, ceilings, or your furnishings, or your artwork. Then I have a second group where we're dealing with inputs, primes, as again, they're called, that are a little more right. diffused, a little less tangible. So that might be lighting or smell or noise or music. And then the last group, I talk about things that we can do to actually promote creativity. And so obviously, if you know what those things are, you can design your home to accommodate or encourage you to do them. So you ask, you know, what are some of the things that you can do? You know, partially it depends on where are you starting with? What is your writing space now? Right. So Let's for start example, with my writing space. Let's okay, so that. tell me. So, so how? how Where is your desk within the space? My desk is it. Okay. Go ahead. So, my desk is what I'm talking to you on now, and it faces a wall. I have always faced a blank wall when I write. It's my preference, and so I'm facing my computer, of course, my big iMac, and I'm looking at a blank wall. I have a picture to my hanging on the wall to my right. I have a bookcase full of books to my immediate left. So that's my sort of immediate surroundings. What's what uh, are you in a larger room or is that room all I'm in a room writing? I'm in a small like I'm in a room that's maybe 10 by 10 about Okay. Is that? Okay. And then I got a, a window? window to my left. Yeah, I got a window okay. to my left that looks out on the street. I do occasionally stand and look out that window uh and uh see the squirrels and the crows and the humans. Uh <laughs> I will look at that sometimes, but mostly I stare at well, mostly I stare at the space behind my eyes that only I can see, but my <laughs> face is pointing at the wall. So, okay, so that's, that's what I'm looking at most. Of. There's stuff behind me, but I never look at it. Okay, so uh, here's uh, 
some interesting commentary here. Now, look, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if things work for you or whomever, great. Don't worry about right. what the science says. What, what science is doing is trying to find the kind of archetypal person, right? I mean, you have to right. have 10, 20, 50 subjects in order to kind of average out to kind of find the norm. But, of course, when it comes to you or me or the person listening, it could be very individualistic. In any case, there's a couple of things I would say about your desk orientation that rubs a little bit against what the, the data suggests. First of all, um, when we face a wall, when we have our, our desk butted up against the wall, we are necessarily, by definition, 20, 24, 30 inches away from that right. wall. So your right. sense of space is very, uh, how shall we say, constrained, right? It's relatively right. shallow. So there are right. a number of techniques in the book that talk about trying to get you to feel that space around you is more open, more expansive, because what happens right. we find again and again is that, and think about how we use language, when we say someone is creative, we say they are open to new ideas, right. open to new ways of doing right. things, open to new ways of looking at the world. And so there, is, there seems to be this correlation between our sense of surrounding space and the open-mindedness of the individual. So when you're staring at the wall two feet away, you are a little bit compressing your sense of space. If you turn your desk at 90 degrees to the wall, ideally, if you could have an oblique view or direct view right. out the window, that would be great. Some people yeah. would turn it around all the way uh, and face into the room. Either one, strictly speaking on the data, might help you uh, think more creatively. And here's the second thing going on there. When you have your desk against a wall, your back is necessarily to the space, right? You can't see right. who's coming into the room. And there is, again, long kind of like a line of evidence saying when our backs are exposed and we can't see behind us, we get a little bit tense. We get a little bit stressed out. <laughs> and the reason goes back oh, like to our in the old west. A little bit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you got, you know, you're not covering your blind spot. So right, what, what is right. this all about? Why? But, you know, even if there's no, you know, uh, shooters in your house, in fact, there's no right. danger, really, literally. But psychologically, we are all wired to position ourselves relative to the surrounding space so that we have the best possible view at the same time that we feel protected in our blind spots behind us, at our flanks, overhead. So we may not feel it, but our tension levels could be rising up. And the problem with tension and stress, besides just kind of being bad in general, is they limit our creativity because they are kind of the anti uh, antidote to creativity when we get stressed we tend to become much more focused much more rational much more analytic that's left brain thinking whereas yeah. when we're quote creative mode we want to kind of be fluid we want to kind of be open-minded we want to let thoughts go where they be so two aspects you might want to explore just you know hey you know right. try it see if it does anything for you if not go back to the way it was but Again, I'm sharing the evidence, and people can kind of use it as they, um, you know, feel most comfortable. All right. So this is interesting. So now the other time, so I've always written in a room with the door closed, facing a wall. That's how I've always done it for 30 years. That's what I did. Even when I was a <laughs> Seems kid. to be I, working. Seems I, to be working, I, Bill. I, Donald, there was a time when I there was a short time in my life when I was I I'd been working in restaurants. I got out and I had no job and I had a lot of free time. And so I was writing my books as usual. But I needed to do something, and so I would go to this coffee shop nearby, and I would write there. This is a cliche, the right, but I did it, and it, I could do it. I was writing a blog, every, a little essay every day at this coffee shop, and I found I quite liked the sort of – I'd sit sort of usually in the middle of the, of the cafe, and I'd have my coffee, and 
I always thought I needed dead silence to write, but I didn't. I think the noise of the cafe created a kind of white noise, and I was creative in that space. So talk to me about the cliche of the coffee shop as a writing creative environment. Sure. So, and this one, Bill, you're right on the money. Uh, according to the data, when you mentioned the sort of hubbub, the chatter and such, according to the data, the sweet spot for idea generation, idea flow, creativity, all synonyms, is about 70 decibels, which happens to be about the sound level of your typical coffee shop on a moderately busy day. And, of course, when you're listening, when you're hearing chatter, that's called white noise, right? It's kind of unintelligible when people are talking all the same time. So you're not really focused on what's being said. You just like the fact that there's this background noise going on because what seems to be happening is that's taking just enough uh, edge off of your focused attention, that kind of analytical mindset and nudging you over into that kind of creative mode. The other thing you mentioned, by the way, caffeine is also (laughs) something I touch on in the book. There is some evidence that caffeine also opens up the mind. um, I think because it uh, releases dopamine, it involves neurotransmitters, which is all about making connections in your head. And of course, connectivity is very much tied into creativity. So you had a bunch of things going for you uh, in that coffee shop. And by the way, um, I would also mention, you know, for folks who might be have their writing space, like in a uh, converted closet or under a stair, somewhere where they really don't have the ability to just turn the desk around or move the desk around. There are things you can do to offset that issue. And you touched on one in your description of your current writing space. You mentioned a picture. So even if you put up some artwork on that wall, especially if it's artwork, let's say a landscape painting, now your mind's eye thinks, ooh, open space, distance, openness, because our minds seem to respond to metaphorical representations of the real thing as much as the real thing itself. So there are always things you can do to offset. Right. And so, okay, so now let's say someone came to you and said, Donald, I am a very successful writer, but I got more books than me. And I'm so successful, I'm going to build my own damn house right from the ground up. Just, and no, I'm, no constraints on you, but build me the most creative house you can. I want to feel creative from the moment I walk in that door. Would you have some vision for what that house would be like? Hmm. Yeah, you know, if I had to kind of pick one driving theme that that runs throughout the book and that seems to be uh, the most powerful, most potent um, stimulant for creativity, it's nature, right? The natural world. And you mentioned squirrels and chipmunks and people suggest that you have something of a naturalistic uh, environment out your door. Nature is probably the greatest uh, stimulant for creative thinking because Listen, we spent two million years in pure nature, right? It's right. only in like the last flick of an eyelid that suddenly we spend 90% of our time indoors. That is the statistical right. fact, even, even without quarantining and all the rest of it. And what happens is we become like fish out of water, right? You take us out of nature and our physical systems, our mental systems start to weaken because we need that nature input just for our brains to function because that's how we condition ourselves over 2 million years of evolution. So if we can make this house as open to the surroundings, if we are so blessed to have natural surroundings or bring nature in. You can do that literally by having plants on your desk. You can do that by painting your walls green or having a green theme to the decor. You can use scents, sounds, all of these 
triggers that suggest nature will revitalize the mind, revitalize the body, and boost creativity. So if I'm looking at the site and I have a beautiful naturalistic site, I'm thinking, how can I open up the house right. so that indoor right. and outdoor are connected as possible and still give people physical comfort? Right. I'll tell you, that, you know, I'm, I'm already liking this house. <laughs> I'm already wishing I had it. Oh, all right. Well, like I said, I'm going to buy a house. So I, I'm going to have to make, I do want a view of something, something. God, yes. just a tree or something. I'm in Seattle. There's trees. There's a lake around and stuff. But yeah. And you have uh, lots of mountains. rain. Good for growth. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There will be rain again. Not in August. We've got, we're in smoke season right now because of all the wildfires, <laughs> but soon the rains will return. Well, okay. Creativity. Very important. And, you know, everything helps stimulate everything. This is good. But uh, so if people want to learn about this book and you, where should they go to do it? So the book itself is on all the usual, you know, suspect online outlets. I hope it's in your local bookstore or on a bookshelf near you as well. Um, If you want to find out more about the book itself and myself, best place to start is my website that's donaldratner.com very important ratner spelled with two t's yes um and of course i'm also on facebook instagram and linkedin you can connect with me there for kind of an ongoing uh connection as well if people thought i would love donald to come talk to my whatever my people about creativity and architecture do you do that are you willing to stand up and Talk to people for 45 minutes about stuff. I do a lot of speaking uh, live before things hit the fan. I'm doing right. it now, virtual, live as well. So, yes, I'm absolutely open to talking to anybody and anyone uh, who's interested in this subject. And it crosses creative fields. Writing, obviously, is one of, of many creative fields. Um, so the best place to go for that is to my website. There's a contact form. Uh, fill that out, and that'll end up in my inbox, and, and then we'll talk. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Well, I'm not quite done with you, Donald. What I'd like you to do, so you've written a bunch, you've been writing, uh, obviously you've been doing architecture for a while, but you've also been writing about it. And so what I want you to do is finish this sentence. If writing, all the writing you've done has taught you anything, it's taught you what? It has taught me that thinking and imagining are two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, when we, we, we've been talking about creativity uh, a lot, obviously, and I think what, what I write about in the book most is that aspect of creativity where we're generating new things, new words, new sentences, new ideas. But, cre- you know, as, as, as uh, Hemingway once wrote, you know, um, what did he say? Write, uh, drunk, edit, sober. There is this yeah. flip side <laughs> to creativity where, you know, you got to make your sentences coherent. You obviously have to make your story sing. So this is where we bring in the left brain. I don't mean to denigrate the left brain side of our uh, cognitive profile here, but it's really both of these interplaying with each other, thinking, analytic thinking, right brain, imagination, merging together to come out with a creative work that is intelligible and useful and valuable to other people. I agree 100%. If you think of the traditional left brain, right brain, sort of male-female kind of this traditional male side, the sort of linear, analytic, constructive, and the female side, the intuitive, receptive. I always say to my students, you got to have both sides to make the baby that is the book. You need to that work is to exactly your left side. Right. Right. You got to do it. That's you got to exactly have it. Right. We all do. 
Donald, it's been great talking to you. Congratulations on the book. Are you got? Do you have another one in the pipeline? Are you thinking about another one? Are you writing another one? I am actually putting a proposal together as well, not quite as we speak, but right after we speak, I'll continue to work on it. Good for you. Well, I look forward to it. I hope it. I hope it's awesome. I hope you find the perfect publisher for it. Thank you, Bill. All right. Well, take it easy. It's been great talking to you. You too. Same here. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, yes, people. You need both sides. You need that rational side, that constructive side. You need the intuitive side. You do. And we all got it. You're born with it. Yes, you are. Okay. Well, I'll be back again next week. We'll do this again wherever you are. Stay safe. Stay clean. Thank my producer, RJ Jeffries. Thank you, my friend. Until then, go find something you love to do and do it.